You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Throughout this series, we've been walking through a particular passage here in 1 Peter, and today we're going to stay right here in the text, so you don't have to flip over to any other pages. And we've been learning that our identity is that of a kingdom citizen. Now, if you're an American citizen and a kingdom citizen, you have a dual citizenship. And we're learning that as we are in this kingdom, we're kind of living in the land in between the right here as American citizens and the not quite yet kingdom citizenship that we'll enjoy when God's kingdom fully comes on this earth. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying that God's kingdom would come even right here, right now, as we lean into who we are as kingdom citizens. Do you remember the, the things that we're called, the identifiers that we've been studying? Look here in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Do you remember what we've said here in these last four weeks? As kingdom citizens, that's who we are. We need to be reminded of who we are because that's not the descriptions that most people that are outside the kingdom give to us. But you're a chosen race. We're all one big family. And uh, we view racial issues through the lens of Scripture. And we've learned that we're a holy nation set apart from an unholy nation. And our borders are not geopolitical. Our borders are moral and spiritual. And we're a royal priesthood. Do you remember what that means? That means that as a, as a priest, we stand in the gap between the holiness of God and the unholiness of our nation. We grab hold of the holiness of God with one hand, and we grab hold of the unholiness of this nation with the other, and we pull with all of our might, and we want this nation to know you can have direct access into the holiness of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a priest knows. You are a royal priesthood. And last week we learned that we're a purchased people, valued far beyond our worth. And yet through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been brought into relationship and God owns us. I belong to God. So all of these identifiers, now we've come to the last one here and we're gonna see it. Uh, let's pick up the reading here in verse 11. He says, beloved, now that's encouraging enough, just that word. Does anybody need to know this morning? You are loved. You are loved according to what God says. You are a beloved part of the family of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, not only are we a chosen race, a royal nation, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a purchased people, we are sojourners and exiles. Now, those two words, sojourners and exiles, are probably not words that you've used very much just in your casual conversations this week, are they? So what does it mean? Now, uh, this word, the original Greek word, is, is translated in a lot of different ways in different 
variations and versions of the Bible. If you have a, a King James Bible, or if you have a New American Standard version of the Bible, one of the words that's used there to translate these two words is the word strangers. To be a sojourner implies there's movement. You're on a journey. You're a sojourner. It's simply telling us you are a temporary resident of the land you now occupy. This world is not my home. Anybody looking for an upgrade over the home you got? Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the dwelling place you live in, but everything around it, right? The political system and the morals and the values. Well, that's the promise that we have as kingdom citizens. We are temporary residents. The word means to dwell alongside a house. In other words, I don't quite have my permanent dwelling place yet. I'm still waiting to receive that as a kingdom citizen. I'm on a journey. I am a migrant. I'm an immigrant. I am an exile. To be an exile means that you are someone who is experiencing prolonged separation from your homeland. Are you homesick down here? Don't you long to be with Jesus? Don't you long to be in a place that exalts Jesus and values what Jesus said and everything is ordered as Jesus in the center? That's not the, the land we're living in now, is it? But as a kingdom citizen, that will be our reality one day. We are exiles and strangers. I like that word stranger. Um, you probably haven't walked up to somebody and introduced yourself as a Christian. Hi, I'm a stranger. But that's a good identifier of people that are outside. That's kind of what they call us, right? You're a little strange, aren't you? One of the best books I've read in uh, the last year is a book by Russell Moore, and it's entitled Onward. On the back cover of it is kind of the byline, and it kind of is just the summary statement of the whole book. It's this. Keep Christianity strange. How many of you are holding up your end of the bargain on that? Um, you, you're contributing quite well to keeping Christianity strange. Now, that doesn't mean that you're weird. It actually means that you're normal and everybody else is strange. And Christianity is not getting stranger. We're just doing what we do. We're doing our thing. It's that the world is moving further and further away from King Jesus. And the pull on us would be to assimilate and become like them. But what we are called to be is distinct and different, and it's going to look really strange to a community of people that do not recognize Jesus as their king. I think that'd be a good byline for our church. What if we just put it on the sign out there, Harvest Bible Chapel, keeping Christianity strange since 2009. Anybody wanna go for that? That's what we're all about. What we're saying is we cannot accept the values of our American citizenship if we're going to be distinct as kingdom citizens. There's a great illustration of that in the Old Testament uh, because there were actually times when God's people in the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah had strayed away from God, committing sins of idolatry and immorality, and that invited God's judgment. And what God did to judge them is he allowed a foreign king, Babylon, to take them into exile. 
So the best and the brightest of these young Israelite men would be brought into and under the control of a rival king. The best known example of that is Daniel. And do you remember his three buddies? What were their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you know that that was not the names they were given at birth? When we refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're using their Babylonian assigned names. We're told they're Hebrew names, but nobody even really thinks about that. But that is even an indicator of what the world is trying to do to you. They want to rename you. They want to assimilate you. But if you understand that as a kingdom citizen, you are right now living in exile, you will do everything within your power to prevent them from assimilating or absorbing you. Do you remember in the first chapter of Daniel when Daniel was brought into exile under the Babylonian king? And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. Now just think about that. How many of you would like to eat what the king eats? How many of you think that lunch yesterday would have been a little better if you had what President Obama had for lunch, right? Would have that been an upgrade over Chick-fil-A for you? Some of you are like, nothing's an upgrade over Chick-fil-A. I just like <laughs> Some of you pay your tithe at Chick-fil-A. That needs to get to the church, okay? So listen, it... In that day, eating what the king ate, that was an upgrade. And why did the king allow them to eat what he ate? It's because he wanted to strengthen them. He wanted to raise them up. He wanted to weaponize them and assimilate them so that they would be useful in his kingdom. Not only to give him what the king ate, and he also gave them the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. So basically offers them a three-year scholarship to the local community college there in Babylon. Three years. That's about a thousand days, which is about the time that a college student would spend on a college campus today. But what if we took all of the 18-year-olds graduating from college this year who are kingdom citizens and put them into an educational system that was totally foreign to our allegiance to King Jesus and allowed that educational system and their diet to absorb them and assimilate them into the current kingdom. That's what the king was doing in Babylon and that's not too far from what is happening to a lot of Christian kingdom kids in our day. So he allowed them to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king with a completely different value system, with a completely different allegiance to a completely different king. Well, Daniel detected what was going on, and he said, I am not going to be assimilated. I am keeping Christianity strange. And so do you know what he did? A few verses later, it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked not to defile himself. He took a stand. He put his foot down and said, you know what? As good as that meal looks and as smart as you're trying to make me and as great as those scholarship offers are, you know what? 
my allegiance is to a different king. And do you remember what happened in the rest of the book? Daniel proved himself to be wiser than all the other wise men in the kingdom, and the king elevated him because he was so strange. And that's what God is calling kingdom citizens to be in 2016. You are to keep Christianity strange and not be assimilated. You're to be a stranger. So you're an exile. Now, now please understand, the, an exile understands the difference between being a resident and just a visitor, okay? It's the same difference as you being a resident of a mental asylum, asylum and just a visitor, okay? It's the difference between being a client at a funeral home and just a visitor, okay? That's what it means to be an exile here in this place that we now occupy. That means that we need to remember our, the time of our stay is short. Whatever you have to endure, no matter how hard it is, you can do it knowing that the end is near. Anybody ever done P90X? Anybody ever done that? Anybody ashamed to admit it because it doesn't look like you do it, P90X? Uh, my wife and I kind of did this P90X, and, and there's this one workout that's really hard, and old Tony Horton, when it's the hardest, he'll say, it's only for the next 30 seconds. You can do anything for 30 seconds. I don't know, you know? But you endure it knowing the end is coming. I'm going to get through that. And sometimes as kingdom citizens, we have to remind ourselves the end is coming. I can see the finish line ahead of me. I'm only a temporary resident. And that means as a temporary resident, I hold my possessions loosely. When you take a trip, you go on vacation, you go on a plane or something, do you pack light? Do you only pack what you need? The same is true of an exile. An exile holds his possessions loosely because he doesn't want to be too encumbered by the things that he's attached to down here. And so we pack light. We don't hoard and, and try to build big piles of stuff down here because we know that none of it is going with us into the permanent kingdom residence that we one day will occupy. So exiles, kingdom citizens, it's not a problem for them to give things away and Look for ways to benefit others and invest in God's kingdom. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, you're smart if you lay up treasure in heaven. By whatever you're giving, giving away now, one day, God will return it to you in heaven. So understand, we, we hold our possessions loosely and we keep Christianity very strange. As a, as a stranger, I'm living in a land where I don't belong. Have you ever walked into a, an environment where you immediately knew you didn't belong? I remember when I was dating Andrea, um, we were in Atlanta, Georgia. We, we were traveling in life action and, and uh, we were in a, 
a, a mall, uh, kind of an underground mall in Atlanta, kind of an eclectic thing. I'd never been there before, and I really didn't know any of the shops or anything. And it was time for lunch. We were hungry, and I was trying to be a good leader, and I was trying to pick a good restaurant. And so I saw a restaurant in front of me. I'd never seen it before. And I just, I said, let's go eat right there. And so uh, Andrea is like, no, no, I don't think you understand what that restaurant is. I'm like, no, no, it's a good restaurant. It looks good. And it's it like, no, no. Well, I walked in, and I didn't realize that Hooters was a place that uh, was not a good place to, to, to take a girl on a date. And I immediately walked in. I'm like, you know what? This is a place we do not belong. And so we turned back around and found a Chili's or something. But uh, have you ever been in that situation? It was like, man, I just do not belong here. Well, there's going to be a lot of places where you feel like you don't belong. As a stranger, you should feel like these people do not understand us. We, it's true. We don't even speak the same language. They don't even understand what we value. Sometimes we're gonna be mistreated. As a stranger, that should not surprise us. At best, we'll be overlooked. At worst, we'll be perceived as a threat and they will try to eliminate us and take us out. Now listen, you are not ready to be a kingdom citizen unless you are ready to live as an exile. If you need everybody's approval, if you need to be stroked, if you need a comfortable lifestyle, you do not understand what it means to be an exile. If you shave off the rough edges of what it means to be a kingdom citizen, if you disguise yourself in worldly camouflage so that you don't stick out and you don't rock the boat, you don't understand what it means when Peter says you're in exile. So there's five things that we're going to learn today that exiles understand. The first of those is this. Exiles don't make peace with their passions. Exiles don't make peace with their passions. Do you know what they make? They make war with their passions because their passions are making war with them. Look at it in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh. Abstaining means to keep yourself from them, to create a distance, to eliminate those passions of the flesh. Now, it's, under, it's important to understand that passion is not bad. God wants you to be passionate. The answer to abstaining from the passions of your flesh is not to eliminate passion, it's to redirect passion to the things of the Spirit. Do you see the word flesh there? What is this word flesh? Theologians kind of like to debate about this a little bit. At, at its surface level, it's what you would think. It's, it's your body, it's skin and bone and muscle and all those different things. But do you know what your flesh has? Your flesh has five gates into your soul. What are those five gates? What you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you touch, touch, and what you smell. Every temptation you will have to be fleshly will come through one of those five gates. Therefore, you have to put a guard on each one of those five gates and make sure that what you're allowing to come through is not going to 
energize the passions of your flesh. Your flesh is that fallen nature in you. It's that residual sinful nature in you that you will do battle with until you leave this body of flesh in the dust and you are fully in the kingdom. But until that day, you are going to be at war with your flesh. Notice, it makes war against your soul. So this is a fight not on the outside. This is a fight on the inside. What does the scripture say about how to win this war? It simply is understanding that I surrender to the Spirit of God and that is what allows me to have victory over the passions of the flesh. Galatians chapter five, verses 16 and 17 says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Your flesh does not like to live in exile. Your flesh wants to escape the boundaries of the spirit and go play with stuff and touch stuff and see stuff and taste stuff and enjoy stuff that is outside the gate of the spirit. And so there's a war going on constantly. And you can talk about how you wrestle with or struggle with some particular temptation. Listen, it's more than a wrestling match. It is more than struggling. It is a war. And the more you've been defeated in that war, the more tempted you will be to surrender the battle and just give yourself over to the flesh and just indulge yourself. The only problem with that is you'll never be satisfied by indulging the passions of your flesh. And so I'm here to tell you, no matter how often you've been defeated, no matter, no matter what temptation you're wrestling with, get up every morning, put on the armor, and go to war over the passions of your flesh. Sometimes that will be a defensive battle. Sometimes that will be an offensive battle. But your flesh wants to assimilate. It wants to be absorbed by the culture around you. It wants to migrate. It wants to move. And it wants to surrender to rival kings. Not kingdom citizens. Kingdom citizens go to war and yield and walk by the Spirit of God. Here's the second thing exiles know. Exiles don't expect peace with the natives. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. When he uses the word Gentiles there, he's, he's writing to a Jewish audience here, and he's speaking of people that are outside the kingdom of God. But he says, those people are watching you, therefore keep your conduct among them honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Isn't it interesting that it says, when they speak against you? It doesn't say, if they speak evil against you. Listen, if you're not a Christian, and you're kind of considering, do I want to be among these strange, exile, sojourner type people down here? You need to understand that 
if you surrender to King Jesus and become part of his kingdom, you will be spoken against as an evildoer. God doesn't say you're an evildoer. They say you're an evildoer. But you will have the crosshairs of a rival king on you that will try to assimilate you and destroy your defenses as you try to live out your allegiance to your king. It's what we call persecution. Now, there's all kinds of various levels of persecution. Probably the greatest level of persecution would be what we're seeing in some places in the Middle East where some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are paying the ultimate price for living out their allegiance to King Jesus. There are places in this world where Christians are being crucified, literally crucified. Their throats are being slit. You and I are not having to pay that price, but we would have to say that persecution is on the rise. So let's give that a definition. What does it mean to be persecuted? And Paul Nyquist, who is the president of Moody Bible Institute, says this. Persecution is societal marginalization of believers with a view to eliminating their voice or their influence. As we said a couple of weeks ago, the kingdoms of this world don't care what we say in here. They just don't want you to influence anybody out there. So in the schoolroom, they'll tell you, you can't write that paper about Jesus. You can't hand a, a, a Bible to a, a friend at, at work. You can't uh, demonstrate that you love King Jesus boldly, that they'll put restrictions on that out there. That doesn't mean you shouldn't boldly live out your faith. But notice, there's options you have if you are um, ever marginalized, isolated, threatened, fined, or you are threatened to lose your job, or maybe there's some type of economic pressure they're putting on you. When they speak boldly against you, I, I thought of five options, okay? Here's the first option. When they speak against you as an evildoer, you have an option. Number one, speak back. Say, I'm not an evildoer, you're an evildoer. And if you raise your voice a little bit and you scrunch up your face, maybe they'll be intimidated and they won't tell you anymore. Or maybe you could, you could throw in a cuss word every now and then. I'm not an evildoer, I'm a Christian. Dagnabbit. <laughs> how many of you understand that is not a good strategy, right? That is not a good strategy. But that, how many of you have done that? You've gotten mad and you've tried to defend yourself and, and it's just made the situation worse. You're just pour, pouring gasoline on a fire, right? So that's not a good option. Option number two is this, run for cover. All right, they're railing against you and they're accusing you of being an evildoer. Just, just run away. Just, just go find some place to hide. You know, crawl under your bed. Lock all the doors. Go in the basement. Hide the children. Don't ever come out. Don't ever let anybody ever know that you're a kingdom citizen. And they won't speak evil against you. How many of you understand? That is not a good plan. That is not the strategy we're to employ. Here's a third option. Burst into tears. 
Just, just feel really bad that you have to endure this. Just, just get depressed and, I don't know why they're saying all these bad things about me. I'm a good person and I, they told me at church I was supposed to live out my life for Jesus and here I am paying all these consequences. And then you adopt a victim mentality. Suck your thumb. And I just pray God would just kill me right now and welcome me into heaven for the hero of the faith that I am. Is that the way we're supposed to live? No, bad option. Fourth option, claim your rights. Hire an attorney. <laughs> Sue every person that gives you an evil look and accuses you of being an evildoer and say, that's slander, I'm not an evildoer. And you claim your rights and you say, no, the, the Constitution tells me that I have freedom of speech and freedom of religion and, and you can't talk to me that way. Now listen, there, there are legitimate organizations that exist to defend religious liberty, and, and that is important. And there are times that lawsuits do need to be filed. I was in contact with one this week um, in Indianapolis called First Liberty, and their track record is wonderful. Nine out of ten cases where they step in and defend uh, religious liberty, they win. They've argue, argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. Thank God for those organizations. Thank God that there is still a semblance of freedom of religion and we need to do what we can to hold on to those things. But if you're trusting the American government to defend your rights as a kingdom citizen, you're gonna be sadly disappointed. So you can claim your rights or here's the fifth option and it's really the option, it's the only option that we have in scripture. When you're spoken evil of, prove them wrong by your conduct. That's what he says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what is it about your conduct that is so honorable? What is it about your character that is so impeccable? What is it about your behavior that is so respectable that they can't figure it out? You're so strange. Your marriage stays together. It's filled with intimacy and permanence, and it's so contagious. People come up and say, like, how do you do that? And you raise your kids in a way that they're, they're kind, and they're obedient, and they're disciplined. Do you understand that that gets the world's attention? And pretty soon they're saying, what is so weird about, why, why do you do that? And it may, not re, uh, it, it may not eliminate all the persecution, but it'll certainly get their attention. Here's the third thing. Exiles obey every law of man that does not require them to disobey the laws of God. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The word subject there means to rank under. It's a military term. You have a sergeant and you have a private. They both have equal value. They both have equal rights. But one of them voluntarily places himself under the authority of another. And... This word is an important word for kingdom citizens because there are times that as kingdom citizens, even though we answer to a higher authority, 
we voluntarily place ourselves under, notice, human institutions. What are the human institutions? Government, the marketplace. You might play on a sports team, and there are coaches and captains on that team, and you voluntarily put, place yourself under. One of the greatest mistakes that Christians make is thinking that you are above the law because you worship and serve King Jesus and answer to no other authority. That is not biblical. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So here in verse 14, we have the two purposes of human government. Do you see it? To praise those who do good, to punish those who do evil. So kingdom citizens should be the best American citizens. And that gives us credibility. Understand, though, that at times we will have to take a stand whenever a law of man requires us to disobey a law of God. You say, but Peter said we're supposed to be subject, so aren't, aren't we supposed to obey every law? Now, remember who's writing this, okay? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. Peter was the boldest disciple of Jesus. And when he sinned, he sinned boldly. And when he obeyed, he obeyed boldly. And most of the time when he was around Jesus, he sinned boldly. But then when Jesus was resurrected, Peter was so transformed by the truth that this resurrected Lord was his king. He became the boldest preacher. When we get to the book of Acts, he preached this incredible sermon, boldly proclaiming the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And do you know what happened immediately following that? Peter was arrested. And Peter went to prison. They brought him before one of the governors, and they made a new law. Here's the new law. You are not allowed to speak any more of this Jesus King thing. Don't do it. It's, a, it's now against the law. And what did Peter, the man who wrote those words, what did Peter say? We read it in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John answered them and says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So if you release us, we're going to preach, and we're going to do it boldly and unapologetically, and if it means that we're disobeying the laws of man, so be it. We will not disobey the law of God. So there are times as kingdom citizens, rare times, fortunately for us, there are rare times when we may have to pay a legal penalty for doing something God has commanded us to do. But we do it in the right spirit. We do it without sarcasm. We do it respectably because we want our conduct to be honorable even in our disobedience. Here's the fourth thing. Exiles let their goodness speak loudly. Exiles let their goodness speak loudly. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living, but living as servants of God. So it's interesting. Look back up at verse 13. What, why are we supposed to be subject to these human institutions? Do you see it there in verse 13? For the Lord's sake. There's a vertical reason. There's something that pleases God when we value authority. Do it for the Lord's sake. But then when we get to verses 15 and 16, we find another motivation for being good citizens, not only for the Lord's sake, but for Pete's sake. You say, who's Pete? Well, do you know Pete? He's the guy in your algebra class. He's the guy that sits next to you in the cubicle. He's the guy that he lives next to you in the neighborhood. Just, it's a horizontal reason. Because you want Pete, whoever he may be, to understand that you are more concerned about the will of God than the will of man. But as a good citizen, you are on mission to help other people become kingdom citizens. That's what it says here in verse 15. We are to do good. So what do we do that's good? What does it mean to do good? First of all, we need to understand that the gospel teaches us that we have zero capacity to do anything good. That's what the gospel teaches. You do not have in your flesh the ability to do anything good. Even the good things we do, considered filthy rags, right? So that's what the gospel teaches us, but we rely upon the enabling of God's Spirit to do what we can for the community that surrounds us. I told you last week I've been reading this book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant or Extreme. And Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman say this, living in good faith means helping the world and the people in it to be right and orderly, abundant and generous, beautiful and flourishing with life and relationships just as God created them to be. So we live in a world that's full of chaos, right? Do you know what we do that's good? We step into chaos and try to bring order and right. We live in places where there's injustice. We step in and try to create justice. We live in places that are greedy and places that are impoverished. We step into those places and try to provide abundance and generosity. We go to places that are ugly, ugly relationships and ugly marriages. We step into those and try to create beauty and flourishing in life and relationships. Those things are happening all around us. As kingdom citizens, we step outside the gates of our little kingdom and we step into the kingdoms of the world and try to bring order and beauty and harmony in relationships. And do you know what it does when we do that? <clears throat> it shuts the mouths of those that would accuse us of being evildoers. Not only does it shut their mouths, do you know what it does? It opens their ears. And now the message of the gospel has a hearing because they've seen our good works that speak so much louder than our words. Here's the last thing. <clears throat> Number five, exiles are aware of who is watching. We come to the final verse here in verse 17, and we have four imperatives, four commands 
for exiles. See it? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. <clears throat> the first one, to honor everyone. The word honor means to place high value on someone. To honor means to consider them of worth and value. It has nothing to do with whether or not they are honorable. It is a command to honor. And who are we to honor according to that verse? Everyone. That includes unbelievers. That includes people of a different political party. That includes people who have a different skin color than you. That includes people who are older than you. People who are younger than you. People that claim to have a different gender identity than you. Honor everyone. Now notice it doesn't say fear everyone. That's reserved for somebody else. I am to honor everyone. That means that in every person, no matter how religious or irreligious, Every person, no matter how old or young, every person, no matter how beautiful or ugly, lovely or unlovable, strong or weak, rich or poor, I am to give them honor. It means this, my opponents have value. People that oppose me, people that accuse me, people that persecute me. Jesus taught I'm to pray for those who persecute me. Why? Because they are image bearers of God. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a wedding, and there's about two or 300 people in this wedding, and I saw an old friend of mine in the room. And uh, uh, this, this is a guy who came out as a, an openly gay man a few years ago. He was he's still a friend of mine, and I knew that in that room, he was probably wondering if he was accepted, if anybody had any kind of friendship for him and man I went right to him and I guess who I sat next to in the wedding that next next to my friend and you know we didn't debate the merits of of homosexuality or Christianity or anything I just I just wanted him to know you know what I th this does not have to be awkward you're an image bearer of God I I can have a conversation with you I can sit next to you we can laugh we can enjoy our time together it is that the way that you live your life as a kingdom citizen or do you shy away from those people? Don't make eye contact with them. Don't get too close to them. Or do you honor everyone? Doesn't mean you approve of their lifestyle. Doesn't mean you approve of their opinions. But you can express honor to somebody. And then this, he says, not only to honor everyone, but love the brotherhood. That means I need to find my fellow exiles and I need to love them. That's why it's so important that you are attached to a community of other exiles. It's hard and getting harder to live as a kingdom citizen. I need brothers and sisters to come alongside of me and encourage me and love me and help me and counsel me from time to time. So listen, we got no room to be fighting with each other. We got no room to be picking apart and criticizing one another. In the family of God, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We lock arms and we pray for one another. And what we said in the announcements earlier is so important. If you're one of the people that just kind of comes and participates on the fringe of our church, 
you're welcome to do that, but take your next step inside so that we can love you well and you cannot just benefit from a loving community, but that you can now contribute some of the love in your heart to love us. We as exiles need one another to love and be loved. Love the brotherhood. Here's the third command in verse 17. Fear God. That means only God will receive my worship. The word fear there doesn't mean to be cowardly afraid of God. It doesn't mean that you run away from Him. It means you run to Him. The word fear is an expression of worship. It means reverential awe. That God is so high and so holy that I give Him the worship that is due Him. Now notice, it doesn't say fear everyone. Don't worship everyone. That's idolatry. It doesn't say that I am um, to, to fear the brotherhood. Don't worship the brotherhood. Don't worship church. And it doesn't say I'm supposed to fear or worship the emperor. The word fear is reserved for God. My worship is reserved for God. He alone is high and lifted up. His name is above every other name. He is exalted. That's what keeps me centered and able to do the other three commandments. And the fourth is this. Honor the emperor. Do you know who the emperor was at the time Peter wrote this? It was a guy named Nero. Nero is probably known as the greatest hater of God and God's people in the history of mankind. Do you know what Nero would do with Christians, kingdom citizens? He would capture them. He would dip them in oil. He would impale them on a pole, put the pole beside his driveway, and you'd have a series of Christians impaled on poles, and then he would light them on fire so that when his chariot came up the driveway, he would have a lighted driveway. And Peter said, honor that guy. Now, what is your complaint about President Obama? <laughs> what, 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 what problem and difference do you have with Hillary or Donald? Listen, I do not know who the next president's going to be. I don't know how you're going to vote. I don't know how I'm going to vote. It's probably going to look like this, though. <laughs> Hold your nose and mark the box and send it through the machine, right? But I know this, there is a name that is higher than any other name. Jesus Christ is exalted over all. The whole reason we're doing this series is to understand we don't have to panic and we don't have to complain and we don't have to criticize. We can pray for our president without including the phrase, turn his wicked heart to you, Lord. Destroy the works of his hand. No. We can honor those that God has allowed to be in positions of authority knowing that Jesus is our king. The best candidate is not available to be president. He's already king. So there is a sense in which no matter who is in the Oval Office, it's going to be okay. Because I am living in exile, I'm a temporary resident, one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. Would you stand with me right now? And as we conclude this message and as we conclude this series, I want to remind you of what is written in the final 
verse, or in the final book of the Bible, speaking of our king. Revelation 19 says this, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse with one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and on his robe and on his thigh was a name written. Say it with me. King of kings and Lord of lords. There is a name that is exalted above all. Christ is exalted. His throne is one that is occupied. He is in complete control. He has not lost an ounce of his power, and he ever lives to make intercession for you, a citizen of the kingdom.